You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. Eight decades ago, 120,000 Japanese Americans with perceived ties to an aggressive enemy of the U.S. were sent to internment camps to live behind barbed wire for several years. Tomorrow, February 19th, marks the anniversary of the signing of the executive order that set this country down a path from which we are still healing. We talked to Bill Koneko, past president of the Japanese American Citizens League here in Hawaii, about marking this point in time in our nation's history. It has been 80 years since Executive Order 9066 was signed, and that was the presidential order that Franklin Roosevelt signed in 1942, which resulted in the unlawful internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans throughout the West Coast as well as Hawaii. And in Hawaii, there were about 2,000 Japanese Americans that were interned primarily at Sand Island and Honouliuli, as well as some 1,500 Japanese Americans who lived at or around very sensitive military sites like Pearl Harbor and Lualuale and other places, and they were displaced from their homes. So it had far-reaching impact, not only for Japanese Americans on the West Coast, but here in Hawaii as well. So you often hear a lot about, you know, the internments, you know, they're in California, but, but not so much about Hawaii. I mean, what can you share about those stories? Yeah, in Hawaii, it was a very unique situation. You know, at the time of the breakout of the war, about 37% of the state's population comprised of Japanese Americans. So it was not feasible economically and otherwise to displace, you know, over a third of your population. So as a result, the Japanese Americans who were interned had perceived, and I want to underscore the, the term perceived ties, with Japan, which included Buddhist ministers and Japanese language school teachers, editors of, you know, Japanese newspapers. And they were interned at San Island and Honouliuli. So I think for the practical effect was that, yeah, you could not displace a third of your population. So they targeted community leaders in the Japanese community. And you are taking part in a conversation about the effect of that order and the healing that has had to come because of it. Yeah, and we're just very fortunate. There is going to be a commemoration on Saturday, February 19th, and we're actually going to have Robert Bratt and Joanne Cady, formerly from the Office of Redress Administration at the Department of Justice, who are going to be guests. And Bob and Joanne actually were the ones that put together from scratch the government program that sought to identify, verify, and compensate some 82,000 Japanese Americans and provided them redress uh, as a result of a congressional order. So, I mean, we're very excited because these were the actual two leaders who put the program together and they're going to be our very special guests on Saturday, February 19th. Yeah, so they made it happen. Yeah, and we've actually kept in touch with both Bob and Joanne over the years. And what they'll do is share with the audience what happened in Congress, what led Congress to be able to apologize on behalf of the United States government, provide them with redress. Japanese Americans who were interned received $20,000 in redress compensation, which is really a pittance of the actual value of what they lost. And then How did they go about identifying, you know, literally 80,000 living Japanese Americans throughout the United States and basically compensating them? It's an incredible program that they put together, you know, on behalf of the government, and they're going to be our guests. Well, you know, I went and pulled up the order, and it really is chicken skin, you know, because it says, yeah, the evacuation of all persons deemed a threat to national security. Oh, gosh, just gives you the chills. Yeah. And just think about wartime hysteria at that time, you know, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and, you know, not only here in Hawaii, but, you know, for Japanese Americans, particularly living on the West Coast. And preceding that, all the kinds of racism and racial hysteria for, you know, Asian Americans, you know, as a whole. Prior to, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there were 
anti-Asian laws and alien land laws that prohibited Asians from owning land and becoming citizens and, and immigrating. And then that led up to, you know, the uh, internment of Japanese Americans. So it was a very, very scary uh, time for not only Japanese Americans, but for all Asian Americans living on the West Coast. Through the decades, you know, there have been stories that have come out about that time in our history. There are those wonderful pictures, I think, that George O'Keefe took, you know, kind of just bearing the soul of the the kinds of things that, uh, you know, went on in those camps and, you know, how the guns were in the direction of the people inside the camps and not outside. Right, pointing inward Mm -hmm. as opposed to outward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so those images Mm -hmm. speak volumes. And that's why in particular, you know, we're having this event on the 19th is because we always have to remember what happened uh, some 80 years ago so it does not happen again. Uh, but unfortunately, I think, you know, recently in particular, there has been a lot of incidents against Asian Americans. Asian hate crimes are in record numbers. And in addition to that, Black Lives Matters. And so, you know, the whole issue of race relations and the need to be able to have a more equitable and fair society is can and should be on the top of our agenda. And that's why, you know, having events like EO 9066 is very, very important for us as a community. And, you know, there are stories about those who really felt hurt that they had to defend their loyalty to this country, that that was even questioned. Yeah, and they were Americans, and they ended up in barbed wire. And the irony of it all is that the most decorated Army unit in our nation's history was the all-Japanese-American 442 Regimental Combat Team and the 100th Infantry Battalion. And, you know, our fathers and uncles and, and brothers fought in Europe as Americans while their, you know, relatives were behind barbed wire, particularly you know, for the Nisei soldiers living on the mainland. You know, there is a lot of unfairness in all of that uh, in terms of what the Japanese-American community had to do to be able to prove their loyalty. And we are losing a lot of those veterans, you know, from that greatest generation. We are seeing the numbers dwindle for the, the folks that were in those camps. I guess it's important to really keep the stories alive. Right, most definitely. So that's what the JACL is doing. And related to that, the veterans groups like the 442nd and the 100s and the MIS, there's a lot of sons and daughters groups that continue to keep the flame alive. Very important. And institutions like the Japanese American National Museum and here even locally at the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii, where there is a, a permanent exhibit of the wartime internment in Hawaii. I mean, Having that continued remembrance is so important for our community and even to be able to educate, you know, our younger ones like my sons and and his sons and daughters and generations to come, really to remember what happened so it doesn't happen again. Well, you know, I recently came across part of that immigration history that involved someone here in Kaimuki. Mm. Kamuki Dry Goods, and uh, mm-hmm. you know there was a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and he was wanting to be naturalized as a citizen, and the Supreme Court said no, and you know so he came back home to Hawaii. I just remember talking to the family, and uh, you know one of the gals said, "I didn't know this story," and she said, "The first time I knew about this was I saw my grandfather's picture in a history book." Because the family mm-hmm. didn't talk about it. And so mm-hmm. she learned about, you know, his sense of of pride and his fight. Yeah, I guess it's so important that the stories are told and that they live on. Right, most definitely. And even for our family, like my father, for example, was in the Korean War. And he rarely spoke about his experiences, but also, too, you know, for many of the 442 and the 100 and the MIS veterans, they're very humble and sometimes don't like to speak about their experiences. But that's why, you know, having uh, museums and institutions and stories and radio shows like yours, you know, really cause us to 
create a pause to, to reflect and to remember what went on is such an important aspect of our current society. That was Bill Kaneko, who was talking about the commemoration of Executive Order 9066, which triggered the incarceration of 120,000 Japanese Americans. For links to tomorrow's event, you can head to our website later today. This is Sandy Tsukiyama, host of Brazilian Experience on HPR1, every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. I bring the best in bossa nova, favela funk, and all the colors in between from our largest neighbor in South America. But what if you miss a show? Like many of our music programs, you can stream Brazilian Experience on demand. Just head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, during our live call-in show with Hawaii U.S. US Representative Kaika Kaikaheli yesterday, he addressed issues like the Red Hill water crisis. We were limited to an hour on the air, but the congressman was kind enough to answer a couple of listener questions off the air because we had so many. Here were his thoughts on Pahakaloa uh, training area, the leases there on the Big Island, as well as over-tourism and tourism jobs. Sure. I mean, you know, Pahakaloa is like many other land military leases around the state that are all coming up for renewal in the 2027 to 2029 timeline. So my office is working on those land leases and tracking them. You know, the military has to do on these land leases that some are on, well, most, they're all state land. Some of them are ceded, some are non-ceded. Pohakaloa is ceded land, the cantonment area where the base is, and, and figuring out what, what the environmental impacts look like and what the military is asking for is something that will probably be, term, be determined in the next few years. Definitely tracking it. I'm very familiar with Pohakaloa. My dad was up there for like 30-plus years as a director of public works. He spent his entire career at Pohakaloa. I spent time as a kid doing summer jobs at Pohakaloa. But at the same time, just like Red Hill, you know, there has to be this, this coming together with the Navy or the, the military, the Department of Defense, to figure out how we move forward in Hawaii with these land leases, the training that the military wants to do, but the environmental protection and stewardship that we need to make sure that is part of whatever that future looks like. So I'm looking forward to being part of that process. Our office is all over it, and I'm happy to keep this constituent informed as as it goes through uh, the process. And then on over tourism, you know, I think there's a question about, you know, what you are doing to help uh train and modernize and provide higher paying jobs instead of you know relying just on the lower paying tourism jobs you know tourism is something that 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 this next administration is absolutely and the next legislature is going to have to address because the rapid growth of tourism is is not yielding the types of benefits and returns whether it's tourism growth the environmental impacts that's happening because of that tourism growth. And so it, it comes down to like what type of visitor is coming to Hawaii? What type of marketing are we doing with the Hawaii Tourism Authority? How are we improving the workforce that is in the tourism industry that is usually, like you just said, Catherine, lower paid workers, they rely on the, the tipping market, the tipping industry. But how do we, how are we able to raise their standard of living for um, the workforce that, that works in our hotels and in our restaurants and at our airports? And so we need to take a hard look at tourism and what that looks like. You know, I participated in the Aloha Aina Economic Futures, and they dedicated a section of it to regenerative tourism and what balanced and managed tourism looks like. And so, you know, that's, that's something that I'm working on and, and, you know, trying to work with some of my state, state partners in the legislature to do. And that was uh, Congressman Kaika Kaikaheli answering a few listener questions off the air after the end of our live call-in show with him yesterday. If you missed our conversation with Kaheli, you can um, check it out by going to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
Civil Beats, Blaze Level, joins us today for our reality chat. He's going to talk about the latest stuff swirling around the public corruption scandal here in the islands. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So you're down, you've been down there at the legislature. What's the latest? I understand they passed some kind of rezo out of the House. Yeah, there's a few things that state lawmakers are doing in the wake of this, you know, big bribery scandal that included two of their former colleagues, two lawmakers named Jay Kalani English and Ty Cullen. So just yesterday, the House voted to create a panel that would review state ethics and campaign finance laws. The idea is that if those could be tightened up, you know, maybe it could catch instances of public corruption like we've just seen earlier this week. Uh, there's also word going around that the state capitol could be reopening the first week of March. As you recall, it's been closed since 2020 when the pandemic began. Uh, Next week, the Senate's hearing a bill to end campaign fundraising during the session. That's been a gripe of a lot of good government groups, uh, you know, who see uh, in-session or mid-session campaign fundraising as, you know, kind of indicative of uh, more of that pay-to-play business that we've been seeing, even though there's not always a clear indication of that. And just yesterday, the Senate advanced a measure to beef up this anti-corruption unit in the state attorney general's office. And you found some interesting uh, information about uh, this unit. Yes. So yesterday, uh, the Senate heard from um, numerous officials, including uh, the state attorney general, but uh, another person who also showed up to the hearing, Daniel Hanagami. He's the AG's chief investigator. He's a retired HPD officer, you know, in the early 2000s. He led some investigations into uh, a scheme by some former city officials. Uh, He investigated illegal campaign donations made to former Mayor Jeremy Harris. And now he's questioning why this new unit needs to be created since the AG's office should already be investigating those kinds of crimes of, you know, public corruption and uh, different kinds of white-collar crimes, and they already kind of have a unit set up to do all those things. Well, I guess it kind of begs the question, so, you know, what have they done? I mean, the, the stuff that we've seen develop has come from the feds. So this is kind of Hanagami's gripe, is that there's this unit called the Complex Litigation Fraud and Compliance Unit um, that was created in 2019. It's not clear if lawmakers funded for it, but it's been working over the last couple of years, and it's supposed to investigate instances of public corruption, campaign fraud, and bribery. Uh, but Hanagami is alleging that not all of that has happened. He's saying that the unit has struggled because of quote-unquote personality conflicts and hasn't worked on a lot of cases uh, that his investigators have forwarded. Now, I tried to reach Hanagami yesterday to explain what exactly he meant by personality conflicts and what cases the department is supposedly sitting on, but we weren't able to reach him. Uh, he, he, you know, He's also claiming that this bill is a way to strip him of his authority. Uh, the attorney general's office, though, is, is saying that his characterization isn't completely accurate. They're saying that the compliance unit, you know, was moved into the criminal justice division last year and is actually working on a lot of, you know, criminal cases of uh, public corruption and government fraud. But they're not at liberty to discuss those yet because, you know, they're ongoing criminal cases. Um, The office has also said that that unit's been working on the state's response to the Red Hill water crisis. And this measure that Hanagami is opposing is actually going to help fund this unit that he's saying hasn't been totally working. So, you know, there's a chance that by moving this measure forward, perhaps this unit could be, you know, getting more legs and becoming more effective. Uh, here's a quote from a spokesman from this morning. Uh, he said that, you know, what, what Hanagami uh, sent into lawmakers yesterday uh, commenting on that, he said that using the legislative process to air grievances is inappropriate and an improper use of the valuable and limited time, you know, that the, the department has. That's what uh, that's from a statement from a spokesman for the AG's office. Well, so the questioning on the internal politics or the personality conflicts, that that didn't come out in the hearing? A, a little bit of it did. You know, Hanagami thinks that he, he's the chief investigator, and so he thinks that this measure is somehow a way to you know, get him out of that position. We, he says that he's filed, you know, a civil rights complaint against the department. We haven't been able to verify that yet. 
but it, it you know it does seem that there's some truth to these personality conflicts going on in the department. Whether or not that's actually hampering any of their work, I think that's still up in the air. But the lawmakers weren't able to quiz them on that specifically uh, so much. No, they, no, they didn't get into that too much yesterday, but they did move the bill along with some money to fund the unit. So, you know, hopefully it'll get going. All right. Well, uh, we'll have to watch that one. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Lovell. To read his full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org. Alinda Segura, who performs as Hooray for the Riff Raff, received critical acclaim for their 2017 album, The Navigator, a record that explored the life of fictional protagonist Navita. Now the band has a new record that looks inward, the reflective life on Earth. We talk with Alinda Segura about making the album from their home in New Orleans. It's coming up on the Next World Cafe. Beginning tonight at 8, following Left, Right, and Center. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Imagine a hundred years of Hawaiian music. Well, the largest known collection of Hawaiian music ended up in the lap of the Hawaii State Archives. We were there when scores of boxes arrived in the building, safe and sound, from a trip across the Canadian border. It was back in early December, and it was like Christmas came early for music historian Kylan Reese and archivist Adam Jansen, who could barely contain their excitement pouring over the material. The Michael Scott Hawaiian music collection became available with his unfortunate passing. And his son had tracked us down and said, my father has spent you know, his entire lifetime collecting Hawaiian music. And in his will, he said it has to go someplace where it can be made accessible to the public. And what better place than the public archives of Hawaii? And lo and behold, almost 10,000 Hawaiian music records show up available for us to, to now make accessible to the people. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing that happened. When you say music, like what, what periods? It is exclusively, almost exclusively Hawaiian music. And the oldest record I've been able to locate thus far is 1903. So it really covers almost the entire gamut of recorded Hawaiian music, up to and including some of the jam sessions that occurred at the Hawaiian Steel Guitar annual conferences in the early 2000s. Kylan, I think you need to jump in here, because <laughs> you're a string guy. It's such an incredible, incredible uh, thing that's happening at Hawaii State Archives and the public archives of Hawaii, as Adam says. This, I think of this record event, this historic event of all of these records coming home to Hawaii as a family reunion of Hawaiian song and string. And, you know, through our work with the Kalakai Center for Pacific Strings, We've been researching the story of how the world's most famous stringed instruments came to be. And it's a story that always points back to the Hawaiian kingdom and the musical community that thrived here uh, in the 19th century. So these recordings, they are of multiple generations of Hawaiian musical dynasties. So it really is a family reunion of grandparents, great-grandparents, granddaughters, um, sons and daughters, all playing this style of Hawaiian string band music that has had a profound effect on the world um, as we know it today. So very historic um, event. Well, you were absolutely giddy, the, the two of you, 
you know, <laughs> as you were going through each album. It was like, oh, look at this, and oh, look at that. And, uh, and, and I guess the possibilities, I think, is what I was struck by, you know. Exactly. From my perspective, what, what Kylan was saying on the impact that Hawaiian music has had on the global scale, I think this collection really typifies what that means. Michael Scott was born in Wiltshire, England in 1926 and fell in love with steel guitar and effectively had to teach himself because there weren't many steel guitarists in England, but loved it so much he joined a band then formed his own band, then moved to Canada in 1954 and started another Hawaiian band because he loved the music so much. And this collection is really what inspired him to do this and share his music all over you know, Canada and, and New York and, and the Northeast of the Americas. And you know, Catherine, that story of a British man in the, in the first decades of the 20th century falling in love, falling under the spell of Hawaiian steel guitar music is one that just, the deeper you look into the story, the bigger those instances come to light. And this is a story that we could talk about India, we could talk about Africa, China, Japan, Australia, everywhere in the world Hawaiian music traveled, Hawaiian musicians taught people how to find a musical life. And that that is a very, you know, coming out of the 19th century when if you didn't have money for leisure time or you couldn't afford string instruments, music wasn't accessible, and it was this royal Hawaiian vision of music in the hands of these royal Hawaiian troubadours that changed all of that. Just wanted to add that, to me, the interesting thing is how much early period music we have in the collection itself. You know, I'm going through and, and digitizing some of the versions of Aloha Oi in, in honor of the 175th anniversary at Washington Place that's up and coming. And to find these recordings from the 19-aughts, the 1910s, the 1920s, you know, we're getting to the earliest recordings of Hawaiian music so that we can understand some of the genesis of what we appreciate today. Where did it come from? How was it performed? What were the actual lyrics versus the lyrics we have today? We're just unlocking just an incredible learning opportunity for both music and Olelo Hawaii, the, the Hawaiian language, from these Manaleo speakers. And Adam, you actually had to go to Canada to retrieve this collection. That is correct. The public archives will go to any lengths to, to gather and preserve the public archives, in, including in this case having to go the, you know, the 4,000 miles to Canada to actually pack the records up ourselves to make sure that they could safely transit you know, all the way across the U.S. and then and then the ocean to get here. Um, so it, it was it was an honor. It was a joy, and I, we're glad that we had that opportunity presented to us. I have to ask: Did we lose anything? We did not, and you know, <laughs> we have to say from us, we don't have the funding to do this. And and I have to put a big thank you into the Paul and Linda Kahn Foundation, which have been benefactors of the archive since the mid '90s. You know, they're the ones who actually paid to have it transferred over to the archives. Wow. You know, Catherine, I want to speak to what Adam mentioned about the scale and span of this, this gathering of recordings. When he mentions Hawaiian music recording from 1903, it's oftentimes it's easy to lose sight of how early in the recorded music catalog of any style that really is. And what we see in studying the lives of these musicians who are, are you know, now immortalized on these records, Hawaiians were at the leading edge of the recording industry. Thomas Edison and King Kalakaua were friends. Um, they met up in 1881 on the king's circumnavigation of the globe. And so as early as 1899, Royal Hawaiian string bands were recording uh, a style of music that really would herald um, the birth of jazz, blues, country, western swing, rock and roll, a, a half century before any of those styles had started to take shape. So there's, when we talk about what's to be learned from this, this gathering of records, um, it's really limitless as to what we can we can unpack from this. And you just got a grant from the Hawaii Tourism Authority? Yes, the, the Kealakai Center for Pacific Strings um, this year is going to launch the world's first museum dedicated to the stringed instrument legacy of Hawaii in the Pacific region. And through support from the C.F. Martin Guitar Company, the Queen Liliuokalani Trust, and now the Hawaii Tourism Authority, we're going to be able to really delve into this with a team of scholars, 
Hawaiian language scholars, historians, researchers, musico uh, linguists, and really start to look at this with a perspective that we hope will influence curriculum and really shift the conversation about Hawaii's role in all of this history. Because there's a void right now. Well, it's, it's a story that, to be honest, has been really intentionally written out of the history books. When you factor in the political circumstances of the you know, turn of the last century when Hawaiian musicians were leading the world in all of these technological innovations, they were up against uh, a really concentrated media campaign to portray them as savage and unsophisticated and uncivilized. So what this work musically really is doing is empowering a truer telling, I feel, of this incredible history. I guess the idea is you then take this create curriculum, whether it's in, you know, immersion schools, regular schools, just so that you can share this story because it's a really proud history. It is an incredible history. And and we're going to work to make free PDF downloads of string ensemble arrangements through the Pacific String Museum. In partnership, we're talking closely with the University of West Oahu, John Magnuson, who's very excited about this, Kamawela Kimokeo at Windward Community College. Um, of course, the Queen Lili Uokalani Trust um, is dedicated to making this musical history part of their programming. Um, but my dream is that everybody, pub- public, private, immersion schools here and around the world, have access. And that, which is what I love about working with the public archives of Hawaii. It's the people's music. So let's put it in the people's hands. Well, and, and from my perspective, it's not just you know, put it in their hands. Uh, you know, we have very limited staff here, and a collection of this magnitude could easily overwhelm us. So the, the public archives is actually reaching out into the community saying, we can't do this ourselves. Can you, can you help us? And we've had a, just a very rich outpouring of volunteers that are going to help us organize and clean and index and then digitize. So this will be a community effort to make this huge collection of Hawaiian music accessible to the community. And I can't think of a better way to handle that in the public archives than than making these people part of of our ohana. We already have volunteers working through the process because the first thing we need to do is organize. Of the collection, maybe about 30% is, you know, kind of the premier aspect where it's actually filed by the artist. The rest of it is in boxes that says miscellaneous. So we need to bring a little bit of order to all of this. And they are already starting to sort these records into their constituent boxes to say, okay, these are the A artists, these are the B artists. And, you know, it's going to take us a year, maybe two, just to get that organization before we can begin to digitize. We are not experts in music, which is why we're uh, so excited about this partnership with the Kialakai Center for Pacific Strings, because they are. And we need to know what order do we digitize these in so that we can make immediate use of them, not just have this interesting listening library, but how can we institute it into curriculum to educate further people, to use it in hula uh, in the awana section and give them some new music. And so it's this partnership where they're going to tell us what the needs are, and we're going to help them fulfill it. So if anybody out there is interested in volunteering to help us process this collection and make it accessible to everybody everywhere, you know, please email us at archives at hawaii.gov with your expression of interest, because we, we would love to have your help. Many hands make work light, and we have lots of work. So I appreciate that. What an incredible opportunity is to work with Um, Adam at the Public Archives, because conservation in Hawaii's climate of historic manuscripts, records, photographs, it's a huge task for a small nonprofit like ours. And so we're actually going to be donating everything that we've gathered over the last six years to the official collection of the Public Archives. We will then, you know, share those stories of those, those items through our website, uh, through the Pacific String Museum, but all of the day-to-day maintenance, the conservation is off of our chest. It's off of our shoulders. So it's a really wonderful partnership. And, and since Michael Scott's collection arrived, I've been contacted by three or four other people who have family photo albums, sheet music collections, albums. So I really think this is just the beginning of what will become the world's greatest gathering of Hawaiian song and string. Gosh, uh, Adam, I just went back and listened to the recordings on my phone, and you played the Liliuokalani's uh, Aloha Oi. It's, it's just a beautiful experience 
the particular recording that I played for you was off of an Edison cylinder from 1915. So it's the, the round cylinder with the little horn on top of it. Uh, and to be able to reach over 100 years and, and listen to these experts play this tune on an electric guitar with no amplification, you can understand very easily why Hawaiian music was as popular as it was. It is just absolutely enchanting to listen to that in its original form. And those are the types of experiences we want to share with other people so that they can also really reconnect with, with their cultural heritage. And to clarify, so did that uh, cylinder, was that part of this collection or was that something you had? That was something we acquired because this collection was coming in. We ah. wanted to be able to present the, the full view of all the different types of recording media from the cylinders to the Edison diamond discs to the 78 shellac records through LPs, quarter-inch reel-to-reel, mini-discs, cassette tapes, CDs, DVDs, and and have that full spectrum. But where did you acquire it from? Um, Of all places, eBay. That was Oasis 8 archivist Adam Jensen and Kylan Reese of KR Strings talking about the recent acquisition of a 10,000-piece music collection thanks to a donation from the Michael Scott family. And to whet your appetite, we leave you with this cylinder recording that Jansen alluded to, penned by the Queen on the Big Island while on horseback as she said goodbye to friends. Until we meet again, aloha oi. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Applications due by February 25th. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. Hawaii Triennial 2022 officially kicks off today. The arts extravaganza runs for 11 weeks. And joining us to talk about the event is HPR's Nui Tonigawa. <laughs> oh, <morning>. yeah. <laughs> a lot of people out there enjoyed the Honolulu Biennial. It's happened a couple of times now. It has morphed into a triennial. And it's opening, as you said, today. Uh, yesterday, I've got to say, we have to mahalo Mayor Blangiardi and his administration for targeting Three comeback events for Honolulu. While we were still in Delta, they said, we're going to do the marathon, we're going to do the Sony Open, and this Hawaii Triennial has got to be on the block as well. The mayor said, rightly, no city can call itself great without arts, without culture. You know, especially us. I mean, culture here is a driver. And the theme for the Hawaii Triennial is Moana Nui Akea. That's the region that's touched by Pacific waters. Get the concept. HT22... 
the Hawaii Triennial 2022 is titled Pacific Century E Ho'omau no Moananuia Kea. We're focusing on the Pacific with this festival. But, you know, and it, it's, it's, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? HT22's curatorial director is Dr. Melissa Chu. She's the director of the Hirshhorn in D.C. That's the Smithsonian's Modern Art Museum. She is well-connected. She's um, respected in the international art scene. I asked Chu what interested her about doing this triennial in Honolulu. Ideas. Triennials have a freedom for ideas that curating at a museum within an institution it's really different. And so that's what interested me. What does it mean if the Pacific, the Asia Pacific is central? The Pacific century is a pretty big idea. <laughs> you see, we've been there before. People keep going over us, past us. It's happened before. Yeah, but I, you know, I come also from Australia. I come from a place that has always been considered peripheral. So I understand this dynamic. And all I can say is that by saying something, you put a stake in the ground and you ask people to get behind an idea. You know, there's optimism to it, but there's also a sense of reality and momentum behind it. And President Biden's talking about, hey, this could be it. Let's think about it. What if the Pacific is central? Our views, our way of seeing things, if so, what do we have to offer? It's a good thing to ask. And across Honolulu for the next 11 weeks, you could check it out. From Hawaii, the Philippines, Australia, Japan, Korea. Associate curator is Dr. Miwako Tezuka. She's out of New York. She's with the Reversible Destiny Foundation, also from here in Hawaii. Uh, Drew Kahuaina Broderick, director of Koa Gallery at KCC, is a co-curator as well. And they have had a lot to do with the active and immersive stuff that's going on in, in this city. I mean, you've already participated in it, right, Catherine? Yes, yes. I went on a walk earlier yeah. this week. And the whole idea is to rediscover this town we got here. Um, today, for example, Bishop Museum's um, program's opening up. Gakutsutaya's opening there. And there we can go and see a life-size replica of the Enola Gay. Wow. Are you ready for that? Wow. In, that's the bomb that uh, was dropped on Hiroshima. And inside it are videos and of the event and how its repercussions continue to this day. So that's going to be super interesting. Also, Pacific Sisters there with their avatars there in the uh, Bishop Museum. I think you're going to like it, really. And there's some audio adventures at Bishop Museum as well. Um, probably the big name for HT22, Ai Weiwei. The, um, he's a Chinese artist, really a global figure. Here in Honolulu last, you might have seen his... Um, Human Flow, it showed at the Honolulu Academy of Arts. He, he works in all different media, but so widely respected. And I really hope that you will look up his work and know that you can see his installation at Foster Botanical Gardens starting this weekend. It's just going to oh, be neat. fantastic. Also, Toka, you know, they're a great fashion brand out of the Philippines. I've been carrying this terrific Toka bag for months, and it's just perfect. Honolulu Museum's happening. We've got Ed Grevy and Haunani K. Trask there with amazing images from the 70s and onward. Um, Su Bing is there, another great Chinese artist. Royal Hawaiian Center, you're going to be surprised. It's going to, it's going to jump you at various places at Royal Hawaiian Center down in Waikiki. Also, there's going to be a fun. Um, Ming Wong, a Singaporean performance artist, is taking over a gallery on the side outside of Hawaii Theater. But um, Iolani Palace is great. I mean, I was just there this morning where Richard Bell set up his tent embassy. He's from Australia, as Melissa Chu is and. Um, you know, he set up the Australian embassy there uh, in Canberra to uh, talk about how Aboriginal people in Australia could somehow have a relationship with the government of Australia. I mean, there are so many things to think about and so many threads that we share. And the whole idea is to get out and feel it. A lot of things are free. Hi, Sam's free this um, all with a time. Honolulu Museum's got Family Sunday, so that's free this coming Sunday. Foster Garden, I think, is still three bucks. Mm -hmm. So get out and enjoy is the whole idea. Yeah, so it, you can do this a la carte or go to every single exactly. show and get it back. <laughs> all right, well, thanks so much, Noe. Thank you. We've been talking to HR's Noe Tanigawa about the Hawaii Triennial 2022, which begins today. Thank you.
as we mentioned, the triennial includes a visual treat, which dresses up Ilani Palace in a way it's never been seen before. Motors passing by on King Street Wednesday night got a treat leading up to the triennial opening today. We spoke with L.A. artist Jennifer Steinkamp about her latest creation that bathes the historic Ilani Palace in light. The facade is flooded with flowers that dance throughout the evening. The 3D virtual event dresses up the Queen's home with native and native non-native flowers from her garden. I created all the flowers. I rendered them uh, with 3D software. Ah. And I projection mapped them onto um, the side of the palace. Mm -hmm. When I work, I I generally do research about the place or about the people involved with the place and or something I'm interested in. And I've done many pieces utilizing plants in relation to people like Marie Curie, for example. I, I made a, a big project for her in San Diego and um, I read her biographies and flowers were mentioned throughout the books and but you know that's not the most important thing about Madame Curie but it kind of stood out to me because that's my focus and so I I utilized flowers as a dedication to her and I've just used this approach for a long time now and uh, Melissa Chu one of the curators she thought that I would be a, a good match for this project they wanted to do something with the palace and there was this list of flowers that Queen Lulio Kalani had kept of the flowers that her loyalists brought to her while she was imprisoned in the palace by the United States. And um, so I utilized that list and decorated the palace in her honor um, for this event. Describe for our listeners, you know, what you were doing with these images. So I, I made 3D models of all the flowers and I animated them with a little bit of called dynamics where you create sort of a breeze so that they're responding to a, a wind. It's like a 3D animation effect that you can use. And so I placed I placed the um, flowers across the building. There's about 70 different plants that I was able to model from her list and arranged them like vines going up the columns and flowers kind of filling areas. And, you know, it's a very ornate building, so it was tricky to sort of come up with something that would well that would make sense like all the different shapes of the of the building it's a huge area it's, it's uh, just as much work to to make a giant projection as it is to like paint an image on a now a giant mural so it's, it's a crazy process so what was i guess the most interesting thing that you enjoyed uh, working on with this mm-hmm. project any particular flower that you're partial to I like I I don't I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right. It's coo. It's a lot like a hibiscus. Oh, ko. I thought that looked the most beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of Hawaiian plants that I'd never made before, so that was interesting. So yeah. it's kind of a mix. I mean, there would be chrysanthemums and roses and things, and then, and then there would, you know, all, all kinds of. No, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce flowers. <laughs> now. Okay. And we were there for the soft launch of the project on Wednesday night, a night walking tour of downtown Honolulu in Chinatown, hosted by 88 Block Walks, ended at the Palace. And that is where we caught up with Paula Akana, executive director of the Friends of Ilani Palace. It's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, When the Triennial folks first came and asked if we wanted to be uh, part of it and would consider being one of the sites, I was so excited. At first, I was just excited because I think, you know, we're exquisite cultural institution, Vahipana, and special place. But there's also a whole lot of art in Iolani Palace. I think the palace is a piece of art. And to share the story of all those pieces of beautiful works that Kalakaua, you know, collected as he went around the world and so forth. So I was happy to become part of the triennial. But to find out what they were planning was phenomenal. And so they said, we want to do a projection. It'll cover the whole front of the palace. And I'm like, what is it going to be about? And then they finally got back and they said, how about the Queen's Garden? Because they, they talked about different things. They talked about the Queen's words. And that sounded pretty interesting. And then all of a sudden they said, no, we have an artist who, who loves flowers and we can project the Queen's Garden on there. And Uluhai Malama is such a special place. And, and so... It was just, it's just really exciting. And then to see it this week as they were calibrating it and getting it going, and then to finally see 
in full color and then that gentle movement of the flowers, it was magical. And I really think, I mean, I think the queen would be extremely happy because that's her garden. And I think Kalakaua would have been just jazzed because it was really bringing something old, the history of the queen's garden and something new with this dynamic, you know, innovation. And tonight we have a full moon. Oh, the Mahina, she's so beautiful and she's just looking down and it's clear skies because we thought we were going to have some thunderstorms maybe tonight and it's just the perfect night. A little breeze, you know, it was a little anu anu um, and just a wonderful night and, and just the palace looks so beautiful. And the queen would be happy. The queen would be happy. Uh, mixing old and new Pacific Century. And if you've not had an opportunity to see it, tonight is your last chance uh, to check it out at the palace. It's only visible from beyond the lock uh, gates. I plan to go again and bring my binoculars to fully appreciate the detail. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, uh, we're going to take a break for the president's holiday, but we'll join you back on Tuesday. we got a story about a brush with a president here in the islands. Let us know about it on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Uh, Savannah, Herman Pope, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song all helped to produce our show. The Backyard Quiz Intro, thanks to John DeMello. Theme music, Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Tuesday. Pick up the conversation.